seated. Before we get into our sermon today, I'd like to take a moment and orient you towards where the Falls Church is and is going this fall. Um, if you got a bulletin, I want you to flip to the last page. You'll see there's sermon notes. I expect that to be filled up by the end. No doodling. You can doodle if you want. There, I want to point your attention here to, to this page with the circle and um, the sermon series title called Pillars. So what I want to do uh, to start us off this fall and the first few weeks of fall is to talk about pillars of our church. And I'm going to put four in front of you. And this is not an exhaustive list. There are more pillars that hold a church up. And you'll, you'll wonder maybe some of the things that you love you don't see here. But what I want to suggest to you is that these are four pillars that a church must have to be biblical and healthy. And the pillars, we're just going to walk up to them and put our hands on them this fall and, and make sure we understand them and where their strength comes from. So the first is worship. The second pillar is community. The third pillar is discipleship. And the fourth pillar is mission. And another way to state this would be to say that a church must glorify Christ. That's worship. It must gather in His name. That's community. It must grow more like Him. He doesn't want us to stay the same. He wants to grow us. That's discipleship. And a church doesn't just gather to look at itself. It gathers to be sent, to go. That's mission. So glorify, gather, grow, and go. These are all verbal ideas that a church should be marked for. Now, this is also, it's also the case that, and this is where the image of pillars breaks down a little bit, that these all overlap. The, miller, the, the pillars mutually support one another. And if you look at the graphic you have here of the circles, you see how they're all together, one inside the other. And what this simply means is that when it comes to worship and community and discipleship and mission, you can't really have one without the other. And they mutually need each other like ingredients in a recipe, right? So, so if you do community, discipleship, and mission, but you have no worship, someone's going to say, the taste is off at your church. Or if you do worship but never any mission, people are going to say, this is, this, this is missing something. And so what you'll see is that these things need each other. And you'll also see that there's an intentional ordering here. We're going to start today with the first pillar. The first pillar is worship, and it, the circle goes around everything else. And you'll see there's an ordering. We start with worship because worship is the point. Worship is what people end up doing in heaven. So you could have a great community you could mature in virtues and you could go help your neighbors and never worship God. And at the end of time, you would be totally out of sync with the symphony that's playing, right? And you could also worship, but you could stay by yourself in your house all the time and never come join a community and disciple people and go on mission. So you'll see these things need each other, but worship we begin with because worship is the great goal of missions. Worship is the purpose of our gathering. And I want you to see that this church, the gathering of people and discipleship, we come together in order to worship. And we go out and, and we go out and do missions in order to gather more people to worship the Lord. So that's why we begin with worship. So we're going to look at worship today, the first pillar. We're going to do so by looking at Psalm 96. It's on page 499 in your blue Bible. Please turn to that if you would. Um, you're welcome to listen as well. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, as, we, as we turn to Scripture. Dear God, I 
plead with you that you not leave us to our own devices. My desire is a burning fire for worship here, and that cannot be built through human eloquence, creative analogies, preaching, sentimentality, coercion. It can only be built by your spirit. So Holy Spirit, we know that if we're silent, the rocks will cry out. So would you come now and tune our hearts, set them ablaze in the love of God that we may be a church, a people that worship. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. British uh, professor and author C.S. Lewis, most of you may know who he is. He, he died in the 60s. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He was a brilliant man, Christian convert, convert to Christianity. Uh, he wrote a lot of things, but he wrote a lesser-known essay called Equality. It's short. It's worth reading. It's fascinating, like everything he writes. And in this essay, Lewis admits he outs himself as someone who likes democracy. And some of the British prefer monarchy. But he comes out and says, look, I, I appreciate democracy. But what's interesting is he says this not because he thinks democracy is better than monarchy. He appreciates it because he thinks it's more necessary. It's safer. He says the real reason for democracy is that mankind is so fallen that no one man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. You see, democracy, and we live in one, it aims to distribute power among the people equally. But it doesn't do this because it thinks we're all equally well-suited to govern. It does it for the very opposite reason, because none of us could be trusted to fully govern. Lewis says, I don't deserve a share in governing a hen roost, much less a nation. Now, irrespective of how you feel about democracy or monarchy, what's fascinating and I think deeply true about Lewis's essay is what he's really trying to do is put his finger on this thing he notices among his countrymen that while democracy becomes more and more appreciated there in England, there is this lingering love, need, even obsession with the monarchy. So he says, we Britons should rejoice that we have contrived to reach much legal democracy without losing our ceremonial monarchy. For there, right in the midst of our lives and our culture, is that which satisfies a craving. Where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars, even famous gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food and it will gobble poison. Lewis is brilliantly identifying something that we all share in common. In our spiritual nature, we tend to try to find something or someone that we will value above all things that we want to revere and serve, even worship. Take away our king and we'll enthrone our rock stars Take away the king's summons to obey and will instead serve ambition, career, fame, sex, fitting in. And you see this in America. We love our democracy and we love and work hard for equality. We want all people to have a fair shot at pretty much doing everything. But you don't go to a Taylor Swift concert so that every concert goer gets an equal share to get up and sing. You go to see your hero. 
You don't go to the National Gallery so everyone in D.C. can have an equal shot at putting their art up in an equal space on the wall. You go to see Monet. You go to see Van Gogh. You see, we can be thankful that we live in a democracy and therefore we are not forced to bow our knee to anyone. But we would be so mistaken if we don't realize that in the end, bow our knee, we will. We're hardwired to worship. Humans find some object, some person, and you may not call it worship, but it works like this, something that you value, that you desire, that you need, that in your emotional psychology, you're saying to yourself, this is what I could not live without. And therefore, in that moment, you go from being that object's citizen to its subject. You're obeying it. You're ordering your life around it. You're worshiping it. This is why we should take psalms like Psalm 96 so seriously. It's a psalm that's just one constant summons to praise. We should take it seriously because this psalm isn't trying to coerce you from going from being a delightful non-worshipper into being a pathetic worshiper. It's trying to save you from all your false worship so that you can experience true worship. And it's going to try to convince you that worship, in fact, is deeply fitting to your nature. It's dignifying. There's honor in it. It's fitting. It's also going to try to show you that it's satisfying, that you need to worship. It feeds your soul in a very unique way. And so I want to walk through this psalm with us, and I want to help us see three things about worship that this psalm sets in front of us. That worship is fitting. That worship is satisfying. And that worship is corporate. It may begin in the individual, but it, but it moves towards a corporate expression. So it's fitting. It's satisfying. It's corporate. So first, it's fitting. Um, some people, if, if you were to read this psalm, Psalm 96, carefully, um, you could find a certain aspect of it odd or even offensive. And that aspect is the fact that the psalm is not an invitation to praise. It's not like an invitation you get in the mail for someone's party and you get to decide whether or not you want to go. It's not even a suggestion. It's a command. 14 times. There's 14 commands in this. Ordering people to worship. I'll just give you a sampling. Sing to the Lord. Hear these as commands, not suggestions, not invitations. Okay, this is the psalm. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell out of his salvation, declare his glory, greatly praise him, fear him, ascribe to the Lord glory, bring him an offering, worship the Lord, tremble before him. It's commanded. Now, doesn't commanding worship taint it? I mean, you can't, you can't force someone or command someone to love you. And isn't worship similar? It, it, it's supposed to like love, it's, it's supposed to come from a genuine overflow in our heart, and if it's commanded, it's not exactly worship at all. I mean, does this mean that, that God is some sort of insecure, needy tyrant that wants to raise up an army of mercenaries who worship him under the threat of the lash? That's not, certainly not what we see in the book of Revelation with his worshipers. What's going on here? Um, this is a command. I'm not trying to defang it at all, but there's a little more going on that I think will help us understand 
why these are all commands. And we can understand this. If we just think about a reality we experience in our own lives, in our own kind of secular world, we often refer to things as praiseworthy. And what we mean by that is that in some way, according to their nature, they're owed praise. So if you go to the Grand Canyon for the first time and you're with some friends and you stand in front of it, you know, it's this 277-mile-long crack in the earth, 17 miles wide, a mile deep. It's just vast. And your breath is taken away. And the guy next to you goes, not that impressive. <laughs> you don't say that something's wrong with the canyon. You say something's wrong with you. Or if you go to say in, in Christmas time, you go to see a performance of Handel's Messiah. Um, maybe, maybe you see the Boston Symphony put it on and you're some of the best musicians in the world and they finish and everyone stands up and they erupt in applause and the gal next to you crosses her arm and rolls her eyes. That was boring. You don't say that there's something wrong with Messiah. There's something wrong with her. Now, how can you say that? According to what logic? You're saying that because you believe in this deep law of aesthetics, of beauty. And you're saying, I may not know a lot of math, but I know this. The canyon is praiseworthy. That's the only logical response of your heart when you see Messiah is you need to clap. You see, we know intuitively that certain things simply by their nature are worthy of praise. Now this, this in a sense, it means by their very existence, they demand it of you. If you don't, something's wrong with you. And this is precisely how the psalmist anchors praising God in the center of this psalm. You see it there in verse 8. One little word I'll show you. Verse 8, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. It's that word due. You could circle it. When you go to the library, they're like, you have $2 due. It means you owe us this. The psalmist is saying that God, by his very nature, is due glory. He merits it. He deserves it. It is appropriate to him. It is, in fact, owed to him. To see God rightly is to praise Him. It's fitting. Now, the psalmist also knows, and this is one of the reasons why we have these psalms, is that most people don't praise God, and the reason is they don't see Him. They don't know Him. One of the tragedies, the real catastrophe of the fall of humankind, which happens in Genesis 3, is we're driven out of the presence of God, and, and there's a spiritual blindness that sets in. It's like if you have the organ of eyes in your head, but sometimes your eyes don't work, you're blind. That's what happened to our soul. And so as sinful people, we can't see God. That's why we worship all these other things. And in the Old Testament, it's clear, if God were to fully appear to sinful people, we would be toast. But he does very graciously and mercifully reveal glimpses of himself through the Old Testament. You start to see it. And of course, the fullest vision is Christ. But what I want to I help you see now is the psalmist, what the psalmist is trying to do is somehow help us see God in such a way that we would react because he's praiseworthy with praise. And so, so he, he sets before us some superlatives, some images. I want to walk you through these and kind of like walk you up to the mountain of God and try to help you see it. So what does he say? He says God is great, verse 4. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. 
He says God is unmatched. In comparison to him, all other gods are worthless. Verse 4 and 5, he is to be feared above all the gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. He says God is our maker. We just read it. The Lord made the heavens. He made us. You know, G.K. Chesterton wrote in his little book on Francis of Assisi, he wrote that all the world really has is one bad debt. And it's brilliant because what he means is once you realize you're a creature with the creator, all you can say is I owe you everything and I also can't pay you back. All I have is one great debt to you, God. That's what it means to say you are my maker. I owe you everything. He says in verse 6 that splendor, majesty, strength, and beauty stand before God and wait on him. This is, this is an interesting verse. Let me read it. Verse 6. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The image is of God enthroned in his sanctuary. And splendor and majesty, strength and beauty are personified like Lady Wisdom or Lady Freedom. And it's as though you could take the virtue of beauty or splendor and somehow it would be personified as a person and they would be running up to God honoring him knowing that he is their author. And so the psalmist is doing whatever he can to help us see. My favorite term he uses to help us see God is the term glory. It comes up in verses 3, 7, and 8. He says, declare his glory among the nations. Verse 3, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Verse 8, glory is a, it's a thick word. It it holds together multiple senses, the sense of brightness, of heat, and of weight. So you can think of the sun. We appreciate that the sun's bright. That's, that's like why we can see when we go outside. But we forget how hot it is. It's, uh, it's burning hot. We also forget how weighty it is. Its gravity, its pull is what keeps everything in order. This is an analogy for God. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is an all-consuming fire. And his gravitas, the weight of him, his substance, is what sovereignly holds everything in order according to his plan. I wonder if you have ever spent time or been around a person of great spiritual substance. I, th I have in my mind, or I picture in my mind, a matriarch in the church. It could be a widow, someone who's raised her children, has helped raise her grandchildren, and, and she's just holy. She's been through a lot. She's always prayed through it all. She's been faithful to God her whole life, and she's frail. She's small of stature, but when she walks in the room, it's as though the, the weight in the room shifts. Like there's, there's a gravitas to her presence. There is this brightness in her eyes even while her body fades it's an echo of glory she's reflecting the image of God God is one of unmatchable spiritual substance so this is just the first point that it is fitting to praise the Lord to say it negatively to not praise God is unfitting to your nature it would be like being born with perfectly good working eyes and deciding to keep them shut your whole life. Like, I'm not going to use the organ in my eye. I'm just not going to do it. Your soul has a sense to see God and praise Him, and it's fitting 
to do so because he's so great. And you know, we, we say this in our communion liturgy. We, we, we conclude our service with communion today. And you'll notice at the beginning of our communion liturgy, um, as we walk through it, we say, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. See if you can finish it with me. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God for it is right. It is right to give him thanks and praise. You understand what you're saying. You're saying the first point of this sermon. He's, he's, he's owes, we owe it to him. It's fitting. It's right. That's the first point. But this isn't all there is to say. If we were to stop at this point, we wouldn't go deep enough into the beauty of biblical worship. So it's fitting, but it's also satisfying. And you can see that joy is just strewn throughout this psalm. I mean, worship has with it a sense of joy, right? The word rejoice, things are happy. And so you see this ever-expanding joyous tone in the psalm that goes from, at first you think it might just be a mere Israelite singing, and by the end of verse 1, you know it's all the earth. Sing a new song, all the earth, verse 1. By the close of the psalm, all creation is brought in. And notice, I'll read verse 11 through 13. Notice how happy everything is with words like glad and rejoice. Let the heavens be glad, verse 11. And let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy Worship, proper worship makes us glad. It's satisfying. I want to ask how this is the case. Why is it? How is it that worship is satisfying? And one way to frame this question would just be to point out that it is kind of odd that that God is telling us to sing and worship Him. I mean, think about it this way. Why is it not enough just to learn with your mind by reading that God is great? I mean, you agree with me, right? Maybe you don't, but you're looking at the psalm. I get it. He's great. He's creator. He's above all idols. I get the whole point of the sermon. I get it. And you know, it it, it makes my heart a little bit glad. What is it, though, about moving from that to worship that makes it more satisfying? Why why does worship turn up the satisfaction? I'm going to give you an analogy for this. And then we'll kind of unpack it more and we'll see where it is in the psalm. Um, I like to swim for exercise. And and during the summer, I I, I use this outdoor pool. And, you know, pools in the summer are packed with kids. And if you know, they just never stop talking. They're ever running around, jumping in and out. Now imagine with me um, if a a group of brothers comes and the little guy, the youngest, he he loves going to the pool with his brothers, but he's never gotten in the pool. He's afraid. And his brothers jump in, but, but he stays on the side. But he still loves being at the pool. He plays with his brothers. He plays hopscotch. He goes to the snack bar, gets a candy bar. He throws the football. And you ask him at the end of the summer, what was your favorite part? Go to the pool. His brothers are like, he's never even been in the pool. But he loves it. He loves it. Well, the next summer, he's a little bigger. He goes, and all his brothers get in, and they convince him. They say, listen, listen, we're going to stand right here. Jump in. And he does. They show him how to swim. And before you know it, he's sprinting across the concrete, even though you're not allowed to run. And he's jumping in the pool. And suddenly he's feeling the water on his skin. He's seeing the reflection of the sun on his wet skin. He's feeling the chlorine in his eyes. And he's delighting in it. The end of the summer, what was your favorite part of the summer? I loved going to the pool. You told me that last year. Oh, it's so much better. Well, what changed? I got in. Worship is when you go from looking at God to swimming in God. 
Worship is when you plunge in. Worship is when you stop thinking God is my maker and you start thanking God. I can't believe you made me. If you wouldn't have made me, I wouldn't exist. I'd just be gone. I would never have been. I can't believe it. Thank you. You gave me a shot. And not only that, you made me to exist forever. Thank you. I thank you. Worship is going from thinking to thanking. It's going from saying to singing. And it's the plunge. You see, because we're fully ordered beings with emotions, it inclines our heart to the Lord. Now let me show you where you take the plunge, how you jump into worship through this song. Because I don't want you to be mistaken here. Just because you got the first point that worship is fitting doesn't mean you can enjoy the second point. Not everybody can plunge into God. God's terrifying. He's an all-consuming fire. I mean, you bow before him, but the idea of running up to him and jumping in, how could you know you do it? And this is where we need to see the key to jumping into God is praising him, not just for his greatness, but for his grace. You'll see what this means in a moment. You jump in through grace. Now, the word grace is not in the psalm, but the idea is there. I'll show you where it is. Um, We see the idea of grace with the word salvation in verse 2. Verse 2 says, tell, it says, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation. You could circle salvation. You got the word do circled in verse 8, now you got salvation circled. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Well, salvation has a lot more to do with God than just his greatness. God could be great and not save anybody. I mean, the very definition of his greatness is he doesn't have to do anything. So saving is something different here. Now this psalm, the little phrase, new song, in verse 1, you see it there, sing to the Lord a new song. In, in Israel, the idea of a new song was often associated with a battle or with war, with a great victory. So the context would have been that the Lord had won a great victory, delivered Israel from her enemies. It's very, very likely the context of this was when they finally brought the ark up. David brings the ark up to Jerusalem after war with the Philistines and after the ark had been captured and put in a pagan temple to Dagon, whatever his name is, that old pagan god in 1 Samuel 5 there. And so there's this idea that, he, that they're singing a new song because the Lord has acted in salvation. This is moving towards the theme of grace, you see. Now, there's an interesting reverberation of this psalm, Psalm 96, in the book of Revelation. This is all going to help us see how to get satisfied in worship. In Revelation 5, and and we we know it's a reverberation because you'll see in a second, they also sing a new song. That's the key phrase. They sing a new song in Revelation 5. Now, in this setting, in Revelation 5, it's a scene of heaven. All the elders are gathered and there's these amazing angelic beings and they see God. They see the Son of God, Jesus, on a throne. And in their first vision of him, this is Revelation 5.5, he's a lion, okay? Picture a lion, a terrifying lion in in your mind's eye. They say the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is who they see, okay? This is an image of God in his greatness, his unapproachability. His terrifying power. This is, the, this is the part of the psalm where you would tremble before him. But in the same breath, in the very next verse, in the same vision, suddenly they're looking and it's a different animal. Do you know what it is? I'll read it for you. Then this is the same moment. He's a lion and suddenly they say, there is a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It's a lion and it's a lamb a terrifying lion, a lamb that has been slaughtered. These are polar opposites in the animal kingdom. What, what, what's happening here? 
The Bible is trying to tell us that before you is a God who is at once all-powerful but also gentle. He's totally authoritative. He doesn't run a democracy. You don't bring your vote and preference to him. He commands whatever he wills, but he's also merciful. He listens to our cries and our prayers. He's terrifying and approachable. He's mighty and he's meek. He's dwelling high above and he's lying in the arms of Mary. He's a lion and a lamb. Here's what they say, and all they can do is break out in worship. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. There's the link to Psalm 96 saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people from God, ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and nation. Now, let me connect some dots here. What's going on here is that the Bible is telling us you can plunge in to the presence of the terrifying, all-powerful God because he's not just a lion, he's a lamb. And by being slain, by dying for you, from cleaning you from all your sins, you don't have to be afraid that he'll reject you. And this, you see, this meets an, an unbelievably deep need in our hearts. You see, we need a lion and we need a lamb, but we, a lamb, but we need them to be both together. You see, if all you have in your life is a lion, if all we have is a lion, all you have is a tyrant. If you have a lion with no compassion, you just have strength and authority and no mercy. And that's scary. If all you have is a lamb, sentimentality, emotionalism, compassion, you may have a listening friend, but they're impotent. They have no power to save you. They have no truth to dispel your lies. You need a lion and a lamb. And this is exactly what we see. Now, Now we know, you know your heart needs this if you just think back to the fairy tales and the children's stories. Don't you notice with little boys that they love stories about knights? They love stories where they imagine that they're a knight that gets to serve a great and powerful king. By, by bending the knee to that king and serving him, they feel noble and they have purpose. The king is all-powerful, they're his servant. But the boys also want to discover that the king happens to be their father. Because they need not only to be commanded by him, they need to be embraced by him. They need a lion and a lamb. And little girls, sometimes they like stories about princesses who are in trouble and they need to be freed. And they don't just want the prince to come along to free them out of the tower and set them free. They want him to free her and fall in love with her to want her, to offer her tenderness and gentleness. You see, you need a lion and a lamb. That's what your heart needs. This is why you can plunge into worship, because you come to worship, and as soon as you see how great God is, if you're taking him seriously, you need to tremble. You are not worthy. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 6. It's what John says in John 1. I'm not worthy. And that's when you open your eyes again, and the lion has become a lamb. And he's embracing you in his arms. And he says, you thought worship was about you serving me. Worship is about me serving you. Can you believe that? That's what that lamb that's slain represents. The king came not to be served, but to 
to serve and to give his life, life up as a ransom for many. So as you approach God in worship, you're going to hold back on those areas of sin. You're going to think, well, I'm not perfect. I didn't do that. I, I, I sinned this week. And what I want you to know is that just like light is emanating from the sun all the time, mercy is emanating from the heart of this lion all the time. The lion has the heart of a lamb. And, and there is more mercy in God than there is sin in you. And so you can dive in to his presence. But you need to dive in. You need to participate in this grace and let it cover you. You need the king who is also your father. If I had more time, I'd unpack a footnote I have here that worship is not just satisfying because of this. It's also healing for a culture that is so self-obsessed. Just put this, if you're young, just think about this real quick. Your culture is going to teach you to look at yourself and express yourself. Worship is the total opposite. You lose yourself in worship. It says, look at God. It's a little side note for young people. Maybe one pathway to help is to stop looking at yourself, stop looking at others, and look up a little bit more. Worship is satisfying in part because it delivers us from the bondage of ourselves. There's a beautiful self-forgetfulness in it. So I want to conclude what I've just said is worship is fitting. Worship is satisfying. Satisfying because we go to a lion that awes us who is actually a lamb who embraces us. But finally, I want to just give you a practical way that maybe you can dive into the pool. Because you see, there's some people sitting here who are probably thinking, you know, worship just isn't my thing. I'm not emotional. I'm not like that guy that raises his hand. It's not my thing. That's what you think worship is. Or you think, you know, I've tried worship and found it wanting. Sam, I come, I sing, I feel nothing, okay? And, and you may be someone who just says, I find this whole thing repulsive. I'm not a believer. Don't tell me to worship anybody. Fair enough. You know, you can work this out. Think about it. You're going to worship something. It might as well be God. Um, so let me just try to give you a very practical map. I'm going to give you 52 maps in this last point. You'll see what I mean. Um, the last point is that worship is collective. So yes, do it on your own. You need to worship God individually. Your heart needs to be engaged. But there's a collective way. Worship always goes in the Bible from the individual to the community. The Israelites meet God and then they gather at the temple. Christians meet Jesus and they gather on the Lord's Day. There's always a corporate culmination like the flower opening in a corporate people. So, so let me just tell you why this can help you worship. First of all, there are mornings, there are Sunday mornings where I wake up, and I'm a pastor, where I wake up and my heart is as cold as a stone. I read my Bible, I pray, and when I'm driving in here, I'm more nervous than I am worshipful. Am I going to mess something up? Are the slides going to work? Are people going to like the music? And I can't connect with God. It's hard for me sometimes. And what will happen to me is that I'll be sitting here in the service, and I will notice one of you worshiping. You may have your hands up. You may just have your eyes closed and your head bowed. And, and sometimes I will also know your story and I'll know what you're worshiping through. And man, it slays me. Like it makes me want to cry. And it's as though your worship is a little coal that I can pick up and place on my cold heart. We help one another worship. We help one another get excited about God. You don't have to do it all on your own. Lean on our hearts on a Sunday morning. Sometimes they're cool, but sometimes they're warm. Now, here's a very, very practical way to do this. Um, and I'm going I'm to just completely say, take Sunday morning seriously. 
because worship isn't just our songs. We gather to worship. So here's what to do. The Lord, by making Sunday a day of worship, has put on your calendar 52 appointments for worship already. You say, no, I don't see them. Just go to your calendar. If it has Sunday on it, that's an appointment for worship. That's what it is. Circle it. There's 52 on your calendar already. So here's the first question. Here's the first thing I want you to ask. Will you be determined to worship on the Lord's Day this year? Determined to do it. We come alongside the Lord's schedule and we add a start time, 8, 9, or 11. Why do we do that? So you can prepare. I mean, you might pull up, you know, listening to Bon Jovi, walk in, like, like checking the football score. I mean, the first thing I did when I got in my office this morning was I checked the Penn State-West Virginia football game score. And immediately, I, and, I, and then I was like, I'm going to start watching highlights. And immediately I said, don't, you can't stop it. You got to get in the zone. <laughs> Prepare for worship. Here's what you do about if you're coming to the 9 or you're coming to the 11, start at 1030 and saying, you know what? I'm going to start to focus on Christ. I'm going to be much prepared to focus on Christ. I want to hear about Christ. I want the preacher to tell me about Christ. I want the liturgy to tell me about Christ. I need Christ. You'll also notice that in our worship service, we have a public reading of Scripture. Why is this key to worship? Because you have a king. This is not a democracy, God's kingdom. So when you come, the king speaks through his word. So let me ask you, do you listen reverentially? Do you humbly, or do you come and say, I have my cultural opinions. I'm going to critique the Scriptures today. They're archaic. That's not how you approach a lion. We also have a prayer of confession why is this key for your worship? Well, because the great enemy of worship is pride. So you have an opportunity to kneel down and humble yourself. Come ready to sincerely have specific sins in your mind. You don't have to say them out loud, but when we pray, say, God, I am sorry for this. Oh, God, I humble myself before you. You'll also notice that in our worship service, we're going to give you 52 times to offer something to the king. It's called our offering. One way you worship this is all across the ancient world. Everybody goes to a king with an offering. The Magi do this to Jesus. So do you worship sacrificially? Are you going to offer something to the king? And of course, today we have communion. The, the culminating point of our worship. And here, you have to be willing to let the king serve you. Will you do that? Will you let him wash your feet? You bring him nothing in communion and he lays the bones and blood of his son in your hands and he says, you may think you're my subject, but I would be ripped limb to limb. I would cross heaven and earth to save you, my little knight, my little princess. I know your name. I have ransomed you by my blood and called you into my courts not to be my subject, but to be my son and my daughter. Will you let him serve you this Sunday? And of course, we gather and we sing. Do you sing? I mean, a lot of men think singing is for women. That's such a, that's such a mistake. Do you open your mouth and sing? Let's, let's go back to the beginning of the psalm. It's not an invitation. This is a command. So sometimes, even if you don't feel it, I don't have feelings to do this, let the command prod you along. Let the order of worship 52 times this year, you have 52 easy maps and just fall in line and see if your feelings don't come. But may we be a people who worship, 
Not just the lion of the tribe of Judah, but the lamb who was slain. Lord, we thank you that you are our king. We bring to you our little crowns and we throw them on the ground. And we say, worthy are you of all our praise. Amen.